Hey team, it's Morgan Tioga here from the Challenge Her podcast. I had the most incredible conversation today with Shiloh Curtis. Now Shiloh is a gender equality and inclusion strategist and executive coach and keynote speaker. She was the most incredible pinnacle person that helped over a 10 year period build the AFLW. She is able to speak to me about the challenges and some of the barriers that she faced uh, in the sporting system in Australia and then explains her journey and how she came into working with the Red Cross in inclusion and diversity. She also had the opportunity to work with Golf Australia around female participation and then Bowls Australia looking at how to address the gender balance and it's a really incredible conversation I learned so much from her and the way that she speaks she's done some incredible work around psychology organizational leadership and organizational coaching and I highly recommend that you go on and listen to her TED talk uh, around the power and potential of the women's game A massive thank you to Shiloh again for having this conversation with me. I truly enjoyed it and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm Morgan Tioka. This is the Challenge Her podcast. This is the Challenge Her podcast. And how you got to where you're at. I I like the idea of using a podcast, the creation of a podcast as a learning tool for you. Um, I think a lot of people go into a podcast space, I mean, it's podcasts and everything, go into a podcast space because they feel like they've got a lot that they can offer yeah. and that they want to teach others. And their driver and motivation really is around how can they educate and inform others. But I really like that what you led with was actually, well, I need to learn. Mm. And so what's going to be a really engaging and an accountable way for me to do that and using a podcast, I think that's really powerful. And um, it's a really lovely, honest way of approaching it. Um, and then the byproduct of your learning is that you're creating a resource or resources for other people yeah. um, to learn from your learning journey, you know, from the space that you've provided for yourself. I think that's really clever. That's I appreciate fun. it. Thank you. It's definitely yeah, a, no um, yeah, it's definitely a big learning curve, but it's crazy how, it makes you so aware that you don't know what you don't know. And I think over the last year, I've just, once I've started to really immerse myself in different evidence-based research and some of the learnings, I'm just like, oh my goodness, what have I been doing for the last, you know, 25 years? You just sort of think um, there's so much, if I'm only learning this now, imagine if I could get, you know, other young girls on board and they start to become self-aware as well mm, that's right that's right and I think because you said you're working in a school are you a, t- are you a teacher trained yeah, or you, I'm a HPE yeah. rugby league senior school teacher yeah and yeah so once upon a time I was a school teacher many years ago um I taught senior um school psychology for yeah. about six years um it's my first sort of full-time profession and then obviously moved to where I am now uh but I, yeah I do think there's so much that our training doesn't provide us with and definitely um you know you're sort of still a kid yourself in lots of ways and then you're a kid teaching other kids who are just a few years behind you so um and I and I I went to uni dropped out and went back so I was a couple of years older than a lot of my my graduate 
peers. Um, and I did not as year as well. So it was an extra year. So I was three years sort of older than other people, I guess, entering as a graduate. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff that um, you don't know. And you can only learn if you have the experiences in the role. So um, I'm really grateful for those six years. It was a really good foundational period for me to practice leadership and management and um, working with families. Because when you're a teacher, of course, it's not just the kid that you've got to create rapport and connection with, it's, it's their family. Um, and really, um, I learned a lot about, um, you know, empathising and understanding people's journeys, I think, through teaching. Um, you know, parent-teacher interviews, you always see the kids you don't need to see. And you see the, you don't see the ones you do. And sometimes you meet a parent, you go, oh, well, that's why your kid is like Yeah, that. exactly. Both, both ends, yeah. you know, both ends. So I love being, I love being a school teacher. I really enjoyed my time working with I mean I love teenagers they're awesome it's such a great time in the person's life um and there's so I I find there's so much privilege in being a part of their emerging adulthood um it's a very you know if you think about your own time in your life when you were that age and the level of vulnerability that you experience I think there's a lot of um privilege in being allowed into that person's space definitely what made you um I make that sort of next step into um I guess AFLW was that the next move after teaching yeah yeah so um I was playing footy um I played nearly most of my career at Melbourne University and um yeah I'd set up an under 18 junior girls team and that had sort of that was sort of really early days it was like the second year of under 18 girls football in Victoria and in fact in Australia and, um, yeah, I set up another 18 girls team at my club. I was a captain, you know, of our first and then um, on the committee. And then, you know, I knew this was going to be the future of the sport, investing in juniors and making sure that we had enough juniors to, to fill our senior team down the track. And um, I loved it. I loved coaching. Um, and I had had some experience coaching. I had, I've had three knee reconstructions playing footy and, and the first one, uh, it was in 2001 uh, in our first ever grand final. And the next year we won the flag, but I didn't get to play um, because I was, um, uh, yeah, I was uh, off with the knee. So I was an assistant coach and then I really got to, it was a really good experience for me. I think my leadership um, and my experience as a player was very self-focused at that time. And I don't think, yeah, I positioned the, the experience in a balanced enough way so it was a really good opportunity for me to have to put my own needs aside for a year and just spend a year investing in the capacity of others and what I really learned is that I I probably enjoy that almost more than the accolades or anything like that myself so um yeah I love coaching and so yeah three years later when we got the opportunity to set up an under 18 girls team loved it um and then at the end of 2006 my partner and I were traveling over in over in Europe for four months um, and um, a woman had been in the role at AFL Victoria for two years who was a state team manager, and um, she said she was moving on before I left, and she said, I'll keep you up to date, and so I took my CV away with me on a Palm Pilot, which is pre-iPhone <laughs> and pre-USB sticks, um, and then, yeah, I applied for the role, got an interview, flew back home, did the interview, flew back to the UK, 
um, finished the trip off, got the job, finished the trip off, and then came home and started the job um, pretty much the next day. Wow. Um, so I was at AFL Victoria for 10 years as their female footy development manager. And you know, you had the TED Talk, my role initially was to run a few competitions and clinics yeah. for girls. And, but I always had that idea of, well, we can be so much more. Why yeah. are you lowering your eyes so much? So, um, yeah, I think, you know, from a business development and business acumen, you know, there was so much I learned in that time. I'd been in a school and organisationally, the organisational culture of a school obviously is very different to a national sporting organisation, very different to a corporate entity. And, um, and I, yeah, it's just so much trial and error, make mistakes, stuff, stuff up, get some wins, you know, bring your own ideas and vision and passion and, you know, do stuff over here on the side where you don't really tell your bosses what you're doing because if you did, if you did, they might say no. So you just do it anyway <laughs> and then get the outcomes and then say, oh, by the way, we've been doing this stuff over here. Um, and by the way, how good is this? Um, so, yeah, it, it was a really good 10 years. It was hard. And in some ways it was the worst 10 years of my life professionally and some, in some ways it was the best. Um, so, um, but it was, a you know, you know, as Glenn, you know, um, and, and I both, I guess, espouse those kind of values that you don't get better if everything's easy all yeah. the time. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of learning in that 10 years. And the hard, the hard is what makes me better now. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, like, you know, 10 years of just sort of dealing with barriers of just, you know, constantly sort of having small wins but no one sort of ever sees the vision that you see or like doesn't jump on board as like not yeah. as well but um you know it takes so much evidence you've got to try and prove yourself how did you personally sort of hold I guess like space to stay determined and resilient sort of through such like a, a you know a long burning process of showing hey we are worthy enough to be treated like professionals yeah that's a really good question I do get asked that quite a lot how did you just keep persevering yeah um I you know it wasn't just 10 years of that I think you know being born when I was born 1976 um you know really liberal Turkish family you know with a certain gendering and culturing expectations for women and girls, I think I'd spent my whole life yeah. dealing with doors closed and barriers and obstacle and no, you can't because you're a girl, no, you can't because you're a woman. So, you know, coming into that role, it was 2007, so I was 20, um, actually I was 31, I think, when I got that role and thereabouts. And, yeah, 31. And, you know... I had 31 years of experience of living, of over, of overcoming barriers as, you know, as a person, as a person born as a, as a girl and um, being from a multicultural family, being from quite a working class family, um, you know, being, you know, someone who grew up as a very closeted same-sex attracting woman, as someone whose gender representation is really androgynous. And so... Um, that was, you know, I had amazing, um, I had an amazing lived experience that 
you know, a lived experience of, of navigating adversity, thriving in the face of adversity and, and overcoming. And that's, you know, I talk a lot about the disadvantage of privilege. Yeah. You know, if you can coast on privilege, you know, because you're born white, you're born male, you're born middle class, you're born straight, um, born cisgender, born able-bodied, and you put all those things together and you, you're that person where all of those circles overlap in the Venn diagram, you know, where, where have you ever learned how to overcome? Yeah. And where have you ever learned your resilience? And where's your resilience toolkit? What's your resilience toolkit made of? So I talk a lot, you know, I'm quite open about the disadvantage that sits in privilege. Yeah. You just, you don't know what you don't know. And so where's the depth of resilience? And I saw that last year when I was working at Golf Australia sorry, the last couple of years, but certainly in Melbourne, you know, and golf was shut down in, in Victoria, Melbourne, metropolitan Melbourne for most of 2020 and, and a little bit of last year as well. And some very privileged people that I say that with respect. I mean, you can't, no one can change who they're born to or how they're born or the families they're born into. Um, but I did observe some people that were highly privileged in their lives, but never, um, never really, uh, they, they really struggled in COVID because it was the first time in their life they'd been told, no, no, you can't. You can't leave your house. You can't go to the shops. You can't go six kilometres. You can't go out after 9pm. You can't play golf. Um, and some of the phone calls and things that we got from some people, um, you would be quite gobsmacked to think that people would make those kind of phone calls and <clears throat> excuse me and have those level of demand so um I think life prepared me really well for the things that I'm doing in my life um because I've got a really I've got diverse experience to really diverse lived experiences not nearly as diverse as others but I know I know vulnerability enough and I know struggle enough that I've got some insight and I can empathize um with people who who are, who are facing adversity and are struggling, and I respect that. Um, and I also know that um, I can't I can't necessarily know the experience of others. Um, I don't know what it's like to be an Aboriginal person. I don't know what it's like to be uh, a refugee. Um, but I know struggle, and that's a space that we can connect to and. I mean, it's a different level of the spectrum, but of, of the struggle spectrum. But I can have empathy for that um, because I've got the lived experience of struggle and adversity. Yeah, um, I, I totally resonate with the fact that it's such a space where, you know, if you haven't had an experience or like a deep, I don't know, a hardship context where resilience was really like a powerful characteristic that, helped you overcome that space um for example like obviously working with kids in a low socioeconomic area it's so easy for us to make really clear and quick assumptions that they are coming in each exactly the same as the other um or with bad attitudes you know you sort of it's so it's such an ignorant thing to think but you you don't know any better sort of when if you've had a privileged life um and I think it wasn't really until you I started learning more and reading more um just you know simple 
books like Brene Brown I think was like one of my first ever I absolutely adore mm. her work um, but just around you know being able to make the most generous assumption that everyone's trying to do the best they can with what they have and I think it completely changed just my persona and perspective about how I approached kids or how I approached young adults um, the types of instead of having statements you know asking questions and being curious and I just I totally understand it now but it, it, if you don't or haven't learnt or haven't been open to learning about it and you have, have a, had a privilege, pretty privileged life, you can see how people can just like walk around for their entire life being very ignorant to the fact that everyone has that level of resilience somewhere that's just in different contexts of their lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, I think the personal is really political for everyone. You know, stuff that gets us in our heart spaces. So, you know, you asked me a question about, you know, that perseverance piece, um, you know, that, you know, and I've spoken, you know, on the TED Talk, I talk about that five-year-old part of myself who missed out, who had that realisation and the pain, the grief that goes in it because it's a loss. It's a stream you have and then, oh, hang on, I can't do that, and then it's lost. And then so with any loss, there's grief. And so grief is a very powerful emotion, of course. So, um, you know, that, that part of me, that five-year-old girl in me, she's still with me all the time. She walks with me and, you know, she, she's a great reminder or a great motivator to keep going. And even, you know, my life is really great now, probably the happiest I've ever been. My life's the best it's ever been. I'm, I'm the best. I feel like I'm the most emotionally capable and intelligent version of myself I've ever been. And, I'm really appreciative and grateful for the challenges that COVID's thrown at us, for instance, because it's been a lovely, a lovely test of all the things <laughs> that I've been cultivating within myself. And, you know, the last two years in lockdown, you know, it's been a really nice opportunity to do sort of a bit of a self-assessment on where I'm at with that stuff. So, yeah, even though everything's great for me, um, you know, it would be really easy then to go, oh, my life's great, everything's easy. Just you can sit back now and but it's not about it's not about me, you know, and that five-year-old me goes, Hey, don't keep don't don't stop trying to create change for others because I missed out. And I think part part of the healing of her is hey, the dog. Um part of the healing of her is a a delivery truck across the road as there is every three hours. Um Part of the healing of her is that she um, she heals a bit more. Her grief is lessened when she sees another girl or another woman or women in the community getting opportunities that she didn't have. Um, and, yeah, you can't go back and change a time in history, but you can choose what you do with the platform and the time you have got. So I think, you know, partly my work keeps going because I, I'm, it's a healing process. Um, part of it's altruistic, part of it's self-focused, um, part of it's about righting wrongs, um, but also, you know, everything's interconnected. And so if, if we make life harder for you, you miss out, you don't become who you could be, you don't bring your potential, 
And what if you have the gold nugget that we need as a society to make our community even healthier and, and more thriving, but we hold you back and we put you in a refugee camp and you are never able to achieve who you could be, your potential. Or, yeah, you miss out because you're locked up in a refugee camp somewhere and you don't get to be the thing you could be, but you don't get to bring your gifts to the community. And so we all miss out on the gifts of you. Um, and that that's the bit, yes. And, and so, yes, it, some of the motivation is very much about others, but, you know, everything is interconnected. So, yes, it's altruistic, but there's a self-focus in there as well. I want to live in a society that's really healthy and thriving where people are amazing and they inspire me and, um, and I get to benefit from the gifts of them. I reckon if someone was locked up in Manus Island or in one of the refugee hotels here in Victoria and Melbourne who could have the cure for COVID, do you reckon that person would be in that hotel right yeah, exactly. now locked up on Manus Island, you know? What are we missing out on because these people aren't free and in the community and contributing? Yep. So that, it, 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 you know, it's two sides of the same coin. You give, but in the act of giving, you will get in return, you know, and vice versa. Do you, and yeah, do you, do you like absolutely adore your job, this current job you're in with the Red Cross? Yeah, I do actually. I've only been there since the start of November. Yep. Um, and it's been a great learning curve for me. So it's a real shift from working in um, sport and working in a very focused gender, gender equality space to a broader inclusion and diversity space in the charity not for profit sector and when you think about all the things that Red Cross do it's quite amazing they're quite diverse I, I learned the other day there's 195 at least 195 different services that we offer which wow. is phenomenal and only I think it's like nine percent of our workforce seven or nine percent of our workforce are actually staff paid employees we're a community of about 28,000 people Red Cross volunteers members and employees and only 2,000 of us are employees so um it's a really purpose, it's a purpose aligned organization for me. Yeah. Um, and I um, I chose, I needed to move out of the sector, out of sport, and I needed to broaden my skill set and inclusion. And so it's a it very much as a learning role for me. I wanted I needed to learn a lot more, but I also wanted to play in other spaces. Um, I didn't want to just be working on helping more women hit a golf ball or and I say that with lots of respect, but I, you know, it just, I, yeah, I, I'm craving, um, you know, meaningful influence of culture yeah. to create empowered cultures where, you know, they're psychologically safe, strong servant leadership focus, growth mindset oriented, yeah. Um, yeah. gender transformational, so that men have got the freedom to be all of who they are. They're not constrained by gender inequality as well Did that as women. Did that get you like, um, so not across the line, but when like the people, when you met some of the people that worked in the in the Red Cross, were you like, yes, this is a hundred percent my space because they're just that servant leadership and quite like just amazing characters. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I don't know why they chose me, but um, hopefully I ticked enough of their boxes. But <laughs> certainly, it's um, it. it I guess any time I go for a job now, I'm interviewing them as much as they're interviewing me. And if it's the culturally the right fit for me and I'm not going to be able to do the role or you give me a role but there's no budget to do anything with it or, you know, you give you give me the role but the CEO is not on the hook or the board's not supportive, I'm not working for you because it's yeah. going to be a fight. So I think that's the other thing. I think I was a bit tired of the fight. 
and I was tired of dragging everyone of being the teacher of others. And I, I really need, if I'm going to, I guess this is, a, I mean, I'm 46 now and I'm transitioning into that, you know, in sport, I'll be honest, there are no female role models ahead of me, really. There are very few. Um, just the senior roles and senior senior roles in sport are really male heavy and how they work isn't how I want to work. It's yeah. like they smash themselves. They, you know, they're slaves to the sport. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I want a balanced life yeah. and I don't think that's okay. So, and there aren't a lot of women in those spaces. So I really couldn't see myself having a future in sport in that way. Women over the age of 55, it's harder and harder for us to stay professionally employed and certainly in sport. So I needed to do something that's going to be make me more employable as an older woman as I age. Yeah. And I know it's, we just bought a house, so I'm going to need to work until I'm probably 65-ish at least, yeah. maybe 70. <laughs> um, so um, courtesy of spending a long time working in sport on sport pay. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I start, I really started to think about what I want to do long-term um, with my career and what's going to make me more employable as an older woman. How is my age and my gender going to be a strategic advantage or disadvantage for citizen sport? So so it's something oh, I'm moving back into that executive or into coaching, but in an executive coaching space. And, yeah, long-term I yeah, want to work in inclusive coaching for senior leaders in industry. Um, and so for me to develop... Um, I guess, uh, greater knowledge and skills and networks and the like, um, moving to a different sector, so the not-for-profit charity sector, into a broader IND role rather than just gender. Um, I mean, the principles are all the same, but having that level of experience will hopefully um, enable me to be more employable in the future. So yeah, it's a bit of a strategic long-term kind of move as well. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's an awesome role, and the people are awesome, and I'm, it's really diverse. Um, I'm learning heaps, and I'm teaching, and they're learn, and, they're, and they're teaching me, which is great. Um, a really strong focus on First Nations people, and getting it right, yep. Um, yep. or as right as we can get it, um, and that's exciting because I'm learning a lot there, um, and just also just being just really excited about the work we do and. You know, I was on a call with a guy this morning who he's leading a team. He's been leading over the pandemic. The Victorian government asked him to pilot um, a program where we're getting hail now. So if it gets really loud, that's what's going on. Okay. And I've seen roof and there's hail. Um, so, yeah, we just, you're getting, you know, he's piloting it. They're piloting it in, when the lockdowns happen. They have really vulnerable people in, you know, 14 hours of isolation, making, you know, making sure that those people had food and everything they needed, but also just psychological well-being checks and um, connection checks for people that are really lonely and isolated. Um, and then it became a service where you could call up and go, look, I tested positive, a kid tested positive at childcare, we're, we're locked in the house for 14 days, I'm going to get nappies. Mm. We don't have any food in the house. Yeah. You know, how do I get that stuff? Where can I get this? So even things like that, I just go, oh, my God, that's awesome. So I don't work in that space, but I enable a culture that, attracts and retains best talent and diverse talent um, to do those kind of roles. Yeah. We need the best people in those roles. And if the best people can't come into the organisation because we're not inclusive enough, then that's a problem. So my role is to make sure that the culture is aspirational for best talent and is really supportive of best talent so that they feel like Red Cross is a place for them yeah. and then they can come in 
and do the impact work yeah. um, and make those phone calls and the like. So, yeah, that's what I'm really enjoying about it. That's yeah. really cool. Um, we have like, I'd say probably about 80 – we're at 80 senior girls across, um, and I don't mean to go back to females, but uh, across year 12 this year, leaving school, all wanting to be elite athletes, all wanting to go down the path of NRLW, AFLW, um, the APL, or you know, all those different sort of paths, which is amazing to see because obviously, you know, I go back to it, I play rugby sevens, um, I played the in the national circuit over the last two years and I've loved it but I love even more seeing how these girls actually can look down these pathways and go okay these are actual viable options for me um to be an athlete to be a full-time athlete you know down the track it's sort of like slowly fruitioning but what would you say we're trying to like promote I guess other jobs in sport not just to be an athlete so that they're not going all right, as soon as I get injured, that's it for me. No more sport. I love being around sport. Um, we're trying to sort of open their eyes to, you know, marketing, education, well-being, um, all the different op- opportunities in sport for them. Um, what would, like, be some key advice sort of going forward if they were wanting to get in that space? I guess because of what you said, you know, just around, you know, people are so sort of stuck in their ways and it, it can be a bit of a tough space. You have to be quite resilient to be able to work because there's no women above you who can sort of, you can sort of feed off or get support from. Um, mm. Yeah, like, I don't know, what advice would you give those girls who are sort of wanting to head into that space? Yeah, that's a really good question and I think probably the, the few things in there, number one is, prepare when you the first day you pick up a ball or get on a track or kick a footy or whatever it might be the first day you start your sport is the day you start to prepare for retirement from sport you can't start to prepare you can't prepare for retirement when it's 12 months away um whether that's when you're 25 because you've got injuries or you're 35 and you've got choice about when you do or don't leave the game and you're just physically aging out of the game i think the first day i think you know 12 months out from retirement, it's not enough time yeah. to get your head right. And I think the other thing, I mean, I found transitioning out of playing sport really hard. And, you know, it's not just you retiring from elite sport at this level from the time you were, like, for me, it was 20, like 23, um, till I was about 30, 35, I guess. Yeah. It wasn't just those 12 years, but I've been playing sport since I was really little. I was kicking a ball when I was five and, and so the thing that made me feel really good across my whole life that gave me the dopamine hit and got my endorphins up and was sport. And I've been doing that since I was five. So that's my strategy. That's my strategy to feel good in my body. And that's something I, that's, I'd known that when I retired at, say, 35. I'd known that since I was five. So 30 years. And so what happens when you retire, that neurochemical hit that you used to get from playing doesn't come anymore. It's like being a drug addict. So, true. so you get a neurochemical deficit. Yeah. And so... If, if the only thing, and this, I guess in my own lived experience, and this is where I, I stuffed up a little bit, I think, but if the only thing that you build into your life that gives you that dopamine rush, that makes you feel worthy, that makes you feel like you've got something to offer, that gives you purpose, if the only thing is, is the physical experience of playing the sport, you are going to crash and burn 
really quickly because you're going to have a neurochemical deficit and then you're going to be trying to re, 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 where you crash and you're low and your, your energy and your motivation and your, your enthusiasm is low and your mood. And then you're trying to rebuild or build forward yeah. from a place of deficit. And that's really hard. So if the first time you pick up a ball, you go, yeah, this is bloody awesome. I really love it. It's great. But I need to balance it with other things that also make me feel great that I can do for the rest of my life, like play guitar. Yep. or read books yep. or go hiking, whatever it might be. But other things that really give you that, that pick up and that hit, I'll do it in a different way for different reasons. That's okay. Because at some point as an athlete, when you're a casual athlete or you're a professional, you'll have to stop playing. And then that's hard. Um, and I guess the other thing is I'd say is how do you, how do you maximise the opportunity that sport brings you? Um, so that you can get those a skill set develop a toolkit that then is easily transferable into other parts of your life beyond or outside or, or beyond your playing career. And that is seeking the hard stuff. Yeah, I had three knee reconstructions. I missed out on playing in the first ever premiership. I missed out on captaining our first ever premiership at Melbourne Union in the VFL. That's what this, you know, some people go, oh, that's really sad. And it was. I was miserable for 12 months. It was awful. But that's because I made footy the only thing that made me feel good. Yeah. I didn't have anything else that made me feel good. And I learned that there are other things. Investing in the capacity of others made me feel good. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't go back and, and remove that experience because it, all three of them, because they made me better, resilient. Um, they made me more resourced. They built my capacity. So they made me a lot better. Yep. Um, and so if you are an athlete, that is uber talented, and this is the growth mindset piece. You know, if you can coast on talent, a bit like if you can coast on 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 privilege, but if you can coast on talent, you're really doing yourself in, because at some point the pond gets deeper, wider. There are going to be people with more talent, or people that just work harder than you, yeah. and you'll never yeah. get to where you want to go. So, if you are the most talented person in your team or natural DNA ability, you need to go looking for things that are really hard. So that you build your resilience toolkit, you build your your striving toolkit, your, your determination, and so on, um, because at some point it's going to get hard, and that might not be when you're playing. It might be when you transition out of playing and you become a business person or you teacher or whatever it might be, it is that you become. You're going to need you're going to need those things, yeah. and if the only thing you ever get from sport are personal and team accolades, then you haven't really, in my mind, you're not successful because I couldn't give a stuff about winning or losing. I used to when I played. Um, But it's not, for me, success isn't, you know, we won many, we played in eight consecutive top level grand finals in my time, won three of the eight. So we played, I played, we had a really successful career, played Victoria seven times, was all Australian player, you know, um, and lots of individual things and whatever. But I never once think about, in my day, I never once think about, um, oh, how good was it when I won this in the grand final? Or <laughs> yeah. How good was it when I held up? That feeling of holding up the Premiership Cup as the captain of my team eventually, oh, how good did that? I never I never ever think about that, ever. But what I do think about is, shit, this is really hard. I'm finding this really tough. How am I going to get around it? Okay, you're going to have to sit back and think about what else can you do? How else can you do this differently? You know, geez, things feel a bit tough right now in life. How did you work around that in the past? Oh, I remember when my knee, remember what did I do then? I connected with my teammates or yeah. 
did this. So that's the stuff, you know, that's the stuff I use every single day of my life. So for me, success in sport isn't winning on a scoreboard. It's it's what you achieve in the pursuit of the scoreboard outcome. That's your success. And the only way you're going to do that is if you go looking for things that are hard, that are challenging, that make it tough. And so if you're a talented athlete, a very talented person, if that's how you, if you value your, um, if you define your success by what the scoreboard says and what your trophy room looks like, you've missed out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've really missed out on what sport is, you know, the true gifts of sport. And that's the things that you achieve in the pursuit of the scoreboard. So what you should be hanging up in your trophy cabinet are, you know, oh, that time that I learned to overcome a player that was beating me on the field. I had to really work hard. I had to do it differently. I've always played inside. I had to play an outside game. Or that year, you know, what? probably one of, the, you know, one of the individual things that I kind of like is I won our club goal kicking one year. I was never a good goal kicker as a midfielder. But I actually got moved out of the midfield and I had to play in the half forward line. And I was a midfield rotation because my fitness was a bit off after my, it was my second reco or third, no, first reco. And I just couldn't run. I, my, my endurance just wasn't what it was. But I had to really shift my mindset and my ego and I had to really think about things differently and I had to redefine what it meant, meant to be successful. And then I had to learn how to kick goals and I had to practice something I wasn't very good at and I ended up winning our goal kicking. So if I think about that, I go, well, that's, a kind, of in, that, that's kind of an accolade that actually... It's kind of a physical representation of lots of things that I like lessons that I learned that I use all the time in my life now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, I was writing some of that stuff down because I was like, that's so valuable, especially the dopamine sort of message. Um, because we obviously we talk so much about dopamine in school. You talk so much about it in health and PE around just um drug addiction and like in the, in that aspect, but we don't really talk about and social media and trying to teach them around social media, but we don't talk about in sport and that that is just such a clear connection because so many of our kids put all their eggs in one basket and we love it and we want to help them and we want to support that in a way because we don't want to take away their passion or feel like we don't want them to think that we're, you know, going against them. But at the same time, you know, if you're so good on the football field, if you're so good on the netball court, you have the capability to be a high performer in so many aspects of your life. You just don't Mm. know how to transfer it across yet. And that trying to help and make those connections is is really tough because they really like to identify with being a good athlete and that's it. And this is good enough for now because it sort of feeds my self-worth. People like me for being a good athlete, so I don't really need to look elsewhere. Mm. And that's something, that's just what your body does. It's not who you are. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And what happens if your body can't do do that anymore? And there's a really good, um, there's a really good, two-part series um, by SBS. Check it out. It's on Athlete Transition. It was maybe made about three or four years ago now. Yeah. And they interview former elite athletes, Barry Hall, Lauren Jackson. Um, I reckon I want to say might have been Yana Pittman might be in that. Yeah. Libby Libby Trickett, the swimmer, are amazing. And those athletes were in tears around transitioning out of being a professional athlete. You know, and because of that deficit piece, and even trust, like Barry Hall talks about, I couldn't trust anyone because 
I just thought people liked me because I was a footballer. I was a good footballer. They didn't, I didn't know they liked me. So I think, you know, if you talk about that lesson around transition to retirement, it starts when you first start the game, not with, not in your last days. It's your first steps, not your last steps that you need to prepare for that. Yeah. A pretty insightful conversation with Shiloh and some, I guess, key takeaways were just to keep pushing the barriers and knocking on doors when internally you feel as though, I guess, you're like that crazy man who is consistently trying to be righteous and stand up for what you believe in and what you believe is right for females in sport and not accept mediocrity. And I really appreciated the conversation and it definitely has made me a lot more insightful around some of the internal barriers and some of the incredible things people like Shiloh have done for us to help increase our professionalism and opportunities in female sport. Anyway, guys, that's us for this evening. I hope you have a lovely afternoon and don't forget to get on and put a review in on iTunes. It would be super helpful. And yeah, that's me. All right, I'll talk to you later. Bye. You've been listening to the Challenge Her podcast with Morgan Tioka. Follow, rate and share to help empower and educate young women.